Acts chapter 13. We have been going through the book of Acts. Last week, we started into uh, the missionary journeys of Paul. There are three. Chapter 13 begins that record. And last week, we looked at the first leg of that journey in the first uh, few verses of chapter 13. And now here in the last part of chapter 13, we look at uh, the, next, the next leg of, of the journey. And in this section, <clears throat> we see conflict. We see conflict within the missionary team. We see conflict from without, outside of the team. Uh, but all the while, what we're going to see, and hopefully we, we can um, see this and pay attention to it, but we see God is sovereign. That's so important. That's so important for us to know now, before the conflict, right before the opposition, before the hardship, before the suffering. Uh, the sovereignty of God is like, like ammunition that we stockpile, right? For when the, the time comes where, where we are tempted to say, where is God? We, we're, we're already, we're, we're ready for it. We're reinforced with the truths of, of that God is sovereign over all these things. We're going to see it here. But not only is he sovereign, but that the word of God continues to advance. Opposition, distraction, conflict, it doesn't stop what God is doing. So we can look around the world. We can look at our own lives. We can look and say, man, it, things don't seem perfect. They seem like things might not be going the right way. Where is God? What's happening? No, no, no. God's plan is just fine. God's plan is just fine. Man can oppose God's plan, but God is active and his word is advancing. We see it here in the book of Acts, specifically here in chapter 13. But look at it, verse, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, that's Barnabas and John Mark, set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they, want, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Poseidon. Now, this is a different Antioch, just for the record. They were in Antioch at another spot, and uh, now they're going to a, another location. You just see it on the map here. You see in the upper uh, right-hand corner of the starting point, they came to Cyprus. That's where they were last week, and now they went to Paphos, and from Paphos, they go up to Pergama, and then all the way up to the left-hand corner into Antioch, which is a different Antioch than the Antioch over here in uh, what is called Syria on the map. And so we see there's two, two different locations. But, but as they go, they, they get away from Cyprus and they go to Perga. And it's there when John Mark um, leaves. And, and all it says is that John, John left them and returned to, to Jerusalem. That's all we got. We got no other commentary at this point uh, about John Mark. We just know that he left. So the inevitable question comes for for most of us, or some of us, would be to say, well, why, why did he leave? What, what would be the, the reason for his, his leaving? Now, there's a lot of conjecture here. Uh, you can imagine that a lot of people come up with a lot of ideas. Some are, have, have some foundation. Some are just us dreaming up reasons why he could have left, right? And, and there are legitimate reasons why he could have left. Uh, illness would be one. He could have been ill. He could have left. Now, it's not said there, but it could have been. Uh, he could have been afraid. Could have been afraid of the journey. This was not a, an easy journey. There were real danger. He could have missed home. Uh, it's one thing to go on a mission trip for a, a couple days or a couple weeks, but to go on a trip and have no re return date, 
uh, that, that's something very different, right? And to be that far from home, uh, potentially he may have returned for that. He could have been in protest. Uh, when we see them start out, the language is Barnabas and Saul. As the trip unfolds, it becomes Paul and Barnabas. And what we're seeing is a leadership shift. And leadership changes are hard, right? We know something about that here, don't we, right? And that sometimes that, that's hard for, for people to, to get on board with. And sometimes when the leader changes, that, that throws, throws things off. And so potentially John Mark would have said, hey, wait a second, my cousin was the leader. That was my guy. And now, now there's a different leader. That's a possible change. That's a possible reason. Or disagreement. Uh, the ministry was to the Gentiles. It wasn't to the Jewish people, namely anyways. And so maybe John Mark was like, I'm not sure about this Gentile business yet. We're going to see in chapter 15 there's a conflict about that still. And so uh, those are some reasons. I don't know what the right reason is. We, we don't know. We don't know the specifics. But what we do know is that Paul didn't receive it very well. We read a little bit further into chapter 15, and Barnabas wants to, to bring John Mark back. And let's bring him back on the team and, and keep going. And Paul says, uh, no dice, man. He is not coming with us. And that led to such a disagreement, such a conflict, that they actually split up. That there's a, a separation in this team. That, that Paul and Barnabas, this kind of dynamic duo, uh, split up over this conflict with John Mark. The relational conflict was real. It was difficult. It led to, at least for a period of time, a distraction from ministry. And it, it could, have, could have been much worse, right? Relationship conflict in ministry can, can very much expose and uh, make dif difficult the work of the ministry. W one commentator says of John Mark that he, he flickered in the crisis. If he were, he were a light, he flickered in, in the moment of crisis. Uh, but as we continue reading the Bible, what we find out is that, that it was a flicker, but the light didn't go out, <laughs> right? And isn't that a good word for us? Uh, maybe, you've, maybe you've had a moment of uh, backing off when you should have went forward. Maybe you've had a moment where, where you, didn't, you, you didn't walk into what you should have walked into, or you were afraid of it, or, or for whatever reason, you left it. Uh, here we know that John Mark uh, became the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. We find out later that, that Barnabas advocates for him, and then Barnabas takes him on, on a missionary journey. A little bit later on in the Bible, in 2 Timothy, Paul actually says to, to Timothy that uh, bring John Mark with you, because he is helpful to me in ministry. So there's some sort of a reuniting that happened. So there was a separation for time, and sometimes that happens, doesn't it? But the, the point was, the goal was, is that there would be a, a, a coming back together. That would be God's desire, is for there to be restoration among God's people in the work of ministry. But additional to the, the physical, or excuse me, the, the relational conflict was, was physical. Now, you don't really see it here. Uh, because all, all Luke does is give to us the, the names of the, the places that they went. And so you, you can't really tell that, that there's any sort of uh, difficulty connected with it. Only if, if we could understand the, the topography of it or the geography of the travel. And the geography of the travel would tell us that it was actually a difficult travel. Uh, Antioch, where they ended up, laid some this is what, according to one commentator, some 100 miles above the northern, north, to the north, excuse me, across the Tarsus uh, mountain range. And he says this of that, that the route was barren, often flooded with swollen mountain streams, notorious for its bandits, which even the Romans had difficulty bringing under control. 
Antioch itself was in the highlands, some three uh, 3,600 feet above sea level. Just for some comparison, Cairo is 725 feet above sea level, right? So we're talking a little, a little bit of an elevation that they would have had to encounter. Uh, it's a, the, the travel would have actually been, been pretty extreme, actually. Uh, the, the point is, is that ministry, that, that missions, is not glamorous. It, it was hard. There was relational conflict involved. There was a physical challenge involved. There, there was dangers to, to this idea that there's a reason why unreached people groups are unreached. Because some of the places where they're at are very difficult to get to. Not only access to, to, the, to the spiritual um, changes, but, but physical difficulty of literally getting to the location. But, but also with that, there, is, there has always been the sense of relational conflict in ministry. And whether that's personal, uh, whether that, that's relational conflict, of course, but also there, there are other conflicts, again, to the physical. Uh, we see that in other ministry leaders, people like Spurgeon who dealt with depression, people like Luther who were, had, had opposition or, or uh, Wilberforce or George Whitfield or David Livingston. Right? So all kinds of different suffering, different struggles, different hardships when we have to follow Jesus, when we're called to follow Jesus. And yet, as we read this story, having said all that, God enabled Paul and Barnabas to get where they were going. Right? He enabled them to do it, even in the difficult uh, terrain that they, they encountered, we come to the rest of verse 14, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. We, we understood, we said this last week, but this was their practice. When they came to a new place, they would go into the synagogue. And one of the reasons they go to the synagogue, because Jews who actually believed at least the Old Testament of the Bible, which that was all that was written at that time, they, they would have believed that, but they weren't seeing the connections to Jesus. And so they would go to those people. And at least they had a basis for what they were going to say, that being the Old Testament. And that brings us to verse 15. You can follow it along with me in verse 15. And after reading the, the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a, a, a message to them, that's Paul and Barnabas, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. <clears throat> now, this might seem strange to you and me, that uh, if uh, we got done our singing and our scripture reading, and I pointed to a visitor and said, if you have a word of encouragement, would you share it with us this morning, right? We, we, don't, we don't do that, so that was not an invitation. If anyone has a word of encouragement, you can keep that to yourself. You can write that down, email that to office at First Baptist Care. So here, here's, here's the thing, though, right? This was not actually unheard of. There was a customary practice of inviting a visiting rabbi to speak. It wasn't completely out of the norm uh, to do that. What one might ask why Paul and Barnabas were, were asked to do that. Nevertheless, they were asked, and uh, Paul would not miss the opportunity to share a, a word of encouragement, or some of your Bibles might say exhortation. Um, this, would, <clears throat> this would be um, probably the, the section of the, the service, not probably, this would be the section of the service where they would, they would um, take the readings that had been done before and elaborate on them, what we would call expository preaching. They would take a text, like we're doing right now, a text that had been read, read, and then say what it means. That's what expository preaching is. We read the Bible, and then we talk about what it means. It's really not that complex, right? That's what we're doing. That's what they would have done. This was the section for it. And so a little bit later, we're going to see Paul alluding to some scriptures. Those may have been the scriptures that they read. 
And so he's using the very scriptures that they read to prove his point or give them the word of exhortation that he gives to them. So here they are in the synagogue, and it's a Jewish audience, obviously, although there probably are some others there too. And Paul takes this opportunity, right? He takes this opportunity knowing who his audience is uh, to to speak, and he's going to speak the gospel. Uh, But as he does it, he knows who he's talking to. And what we find here with, with Paul is he gives to us a master class. And he's going to do this again multiple times in different settings. In chapter 17 primarily, there's a, there's a great um, uh, picture of this. But what's called contextualization. And what that means, that, that, that's a word that means this. that Meaning how to make the gospel known in an appropriate way in a given context. And so we're in church in a Baptist church with a number of people here who have, have been in church for a long period of time. A number of you have. And so as a preacher, I know that. And so there are things that I can say to you that I know that you understand. Now there's others in the room who, who don't know that. And so I need to be very careful about that. And I don't want to assume too many things. But what Paul was doing is here, he, was, he knew that the Jewish audience would know certain things. And so he started where the Jewish audience would, would expect with the Old Testament. So Paul's message was the gospel, and that would never change, but his approach was different. Or as one writer says it this way, the gospel is fixed, the approach is flexible. So that means this, if you're talking to a person in Cairo, Michigan, there's going to be a certain way you talk to them. If you're talking to someone who, who lives in, in, in the inner city of, of uh, I don't know, of Beijing, China, Right? You're going to talk a little bit differently to them. Or if someone who was, last week we had a missionary here from Togo, right? a Muslim person in the, in the bush of Togo, you're going to talk differently to them than, than I'm going to talk to you this morning. It's called context. Right? And so Paul shows us what that looks like by going to the Old Testament. Verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hands and said, Men of Israel, <clears throat> and you who fear God, listen. And he goes on uh, to talk to them about the Old Testament. And he gives this very, very quick uh, snapshot of the Old Testament. Peter did this in Acts 2. Stephen did it in Acts 7. They give this this, uh, a partial accounting of the history, meaning they're they're choosing uh, the things that they they highlight. Um, but he started there because the Jews would have believed that. And in short order, Paul goes, Paul goes from, um, from, from the Old Testament, from, from the beginning of the Old Testament, really, uh, starting with Moses, that is, um, the land of Egypt, Moses, the 40 years, he goes to Canaan, uh, he goes to the judges, to Samuel in, in verse 20, then he goes right to the king, that is King Saul, all the way to David, and from David, he moves to what his ultimate point is, is he gets to Jesus. Look at it in verse 22. And when he had removed him, that's God removed King Saul, he raised up David to be their king, whom he testified and said, I have found in David a son of, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this offspring, he has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? Am I not he? Am I? I am not he. No, but behold, after me come, is coming the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So what Paul is doing is he's, he's drawing a line through the Old Testament. 
He's starting with Moses. He's drawing it all the way to David and then to Jesus. He's pointing out that the history is pointing to, it's coming to Jesus. It's climaxing in Jesus. That's what the Bible is doing. The Bible does not start. The story of Jesus, the story of redemption doesn't start at the birth of Jesus. It climaxes at the birth of Jesus. So the Old Testament is absolutely necessary for us to understand. If we miss the Old Testament, we are missing. We're missing it. If, if all that you read is the New Testament, friend, you're not, going to, you're not going to get it. In fact, this is what Augustine said. The New, as in the New Testament, is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So you have to have both. And if you only go to the Old Testament, excuse me, the New Testament, you'll wind up with what one scholar describes as a, quote, shallow, sub-biblical, and dangerous theology. Why? Because you're not going to know what the, the New Testament is actually talking about. The Old Testament is, is frequently referred to in the, the New Testament. They're not two different things. It's one story. It's one unfolding story. And Paul is showing to the, 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 the Jews in this synagogue that that's what's happening. This story is unfolding over years and years and years, and it's climaxing in Jesus. And they had missed it. They had missed the point of it. As David, a thousand years before Jesus was born, was pointing to the true and better Jesus, verse 24 tells us that John the Baptist was also pointing to this Jesus. He was a, a forerunner to Jesus. In this, this next section, uh, Paul declares this good news. Verse 26, brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those whom who, uh, who fear God. So now he's addressing not just Jewish people, but those who fear God, which would have been probably other Gentiles. To us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath. Every Sabbath they would read these prophecies and they weren't making the connection. Uh, pick it up in the middle of verse 27, which I read every Sabbath, fulfilling them by condemning him. So here's the unwitting part. The fact that they, they did not hear Jesus, they did not make the connection, they did not see Jesus as fulfillment, they actually were then fulfilling the prophecy that said that they would condemn him. <laughs> this is the, the craziness of how God is at work and how we see him moving sovereign over it all. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Uh, Peter said this, you killed him, right? He would say this to, to the people. You, you're, you people killed Jesus. But then he would follow that with what Paul follows it in verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring to you the good news that what God promises to the fathers. Stop there. Paul had told the story of Israel. Now he's telling the story of Israel. 
It's the story of Jesus. As he told the story of Israel, he tells the story of Jesus. One commentator helps us understand that. I should have read that. That would have been more understandable. But Jesus here was prophesied, right? He was prophesied, and they missed it. They missed the point. But what Paul is doing is he's emphasizing Jesus. He's emphasizing how the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Ultimately, his death and resurrection. Yes, they killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Later, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. In this great uh, gospel in a nutshell, when, we were, when I was a youth pastor here, one of the verses that, that uh, Joyce Henry uh, rallied for everyone to, to memorize, which I supported fully, uh, for all the students to memorize and quizzing and, and all of our students, this great uh, nutshell of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that says this, Paul writing this, For I deliver to you of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. According to what Scriptures? The Old Testament Scriptures. <laughs> right? That was the Scriptures. So Paul's starting with the Old Testament saying this is pointing to Jesus. He's saying this is the gospel. And it was in accordance with what God has said all along. The gospel's fulfilling what God has said. And then he goes into the next number of verses and he uses three different Old Testament references. And he applies them, each one of them, each prophecy to Jesus. This is is, um, Paul teaching us how to read the Bible. It's not just how, how a preacher is to preach a sermon, although that's there too. It's also helping us learn how to read the Bible. We read the Bible Christologically. Yes, we read it historically. Yes, we read it grammatically. But we also read it Christologically, meaning in light of Christ. And so he points out how these prophecies are pointing to Jesus. And he picks out one, look at it in verse 33, Let's read verse 32 first. And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. This is verse 7 of Psalm chapter 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul is applying this to the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way. And now he quotes Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessing, or some of your Bibles say mercies, of David. And what's that? The Davidic covenant. The covenant that says that from the line of David will will rule. In the eternal kingdom, there there will be someone from the line of David who rules over the nations. And this was Jesus. His resurrection guaranteed that the covenant was true. And then the last one, verse 35, therefore he says in another psalm, this is Psalm uh, 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And David is writing that in Psalm chapter 16. But clearly it can't be talking about David. Keep reading. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, this is verse 36, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Okay, so that prophecy can't be about David because he did see corruption. Verse 37, but he whom God raised did not see corruption. Who's that? Jesus. (laughs) So Psalm chapter 16 is pointing us to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus did not stay in the grave. He was resurrection resurrected and it validates his claim. And then the next section of scripture, the last section here, verses 38 through 52, Paul moves to apply this message to the hearers. 
And we see that the turn in verse 38, look at it in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, right? There's your word. There's the turn. Therefore, because of this, let it be known, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, what? Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's a lot of things, but there's two things that he's saying primarily. That through Jesus comes forgiveness of sins and justification. Forgiveness of sins, I think we understand. Justification, we spent a lot of time on this in, in the book of Galatians. And if you want to go back, we have all the, the, the sermons on our website. But if you wanted to listen to those, you can understand that. But, but here's what justification, some of you have heard this. Justification is just as if I never sinned. Right, you probably heard that. One writer goes a, a step further and he says it this way. Just as if I always obeyed. That's what justification is. It's not just that you didn't do what's right. It's that you did do what's right. But you actually did wrong, and you actually didn't do what was right. So who, how are we justified? By the work of Jesus. That's how you're freed. That's how you're made acceptable in the eyes of God. Justified. How God looks upon you and sees you as righteous. How could that ever be? It's the righteousness of Jesus. And Paul is saying this to a Jewish audience a Jewish audience who did not believe that. They believed that the law, they had to fulfill the law in order to be justified. The law could never do that. The law only condemns. Why? Because you can never fulfill the law. So it's always telling us, I'm not measuring up. When people say the Bible is just a bunch of rules and regulations, well, it's not just a bunch of rules and regulations, but what the rules and regulations do is tell you that you can't meet the rules and regulations. <laughs> and so if you were to look at the Bible that way, okay, let's take that track and say, here's the reality. You can't do it. You can't even do what it's calling you to do. So what do you need? You need a Savior, verse 23. A Savior who will do what? Who will save you from your sins, will forgive you. And free you from everything that you couldn't be freed from, which is everything. The great problem of guilt that we face finds its solution not in us harming ourselves or hating ourselves or telling us how bad we are or downplaying our sin or acting like we don't sin. No, the problem of guilt that we face finds its solution in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It finds its solution in saying that Jesus has paid for my sin it's not that I'm not, not still a sinner. It's that I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's not that I still don't do, do wrong things. It's that God has forgiven me through the blood of Jesus. Available to all who will repent and believe. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this good news comes with a warning in verse 40. Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. He uses another Old Testament reference, Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, <clears throat> a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul is applying this to the situation. What's the work? The work is that the gospel is coming to the Gentiles. I'm doing something. I'm doing something that you won't understand. And there's people who are, who are scoffing it he says, be, be, be warned that there's perish, those who scoff will perish. They will not see 
everlasting life with God. Verse 42 through 53 tells us the responses. We'll just go through this quickly. They went out, Paul and Barnabas, and the people begged them. Imagine this. Imagine after today, there's people begging to hear more of the Bible. <laughs> Imagine they're begging to hear more. We want to hear more. Well, apparently you do want to hear more of the Bible because you came back from last week. So kudos to you. But this is what they're saying, right? They're saying, we want to hear more of God's word. We want to hear more of the God's word. Not, not more of Paul, more of God's word. That's what we want to hear. And so they come back. And, and we find, verse 40, 44, in the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered. Now, some, some suggest that Luke might be a little hyperbolic here, but nevertheless, a lot of people came back. A lot of people came back to hear the word of the Lord. Again, the emphasis is on the word of the Lord. That's our emphasis as well. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting what was being spoken by Paul and reviling him. So here we see this crowd, They're, they want more. They, they want more. They're listening. And then we see the Jews who are opposing him. And actually what we come to find is that the opposition actually wasn't to the gospel as much as it was to the people wanting to hear the gospel. Right? They weren't actually upset about what Paul was saying. They're upset that other people were believing it. And then a few verses later, that the Gentiles were included. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. That's for us only, they would have thought. So here we see... <clears throat> These people reviling Paul and Barnabas. In verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Here's the moment, right? The moment is, here comes the opportunity. The, the gospel is spoken, and now there's pushback. What do, we, what do we do? What does Paul and Barnabas do? Walk away? No. This is what this says. And it was necessary, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Romans 1, 16. To the Jew first, then to the Greek. They came to the Jew. The Jew rejected, rebuffed the, the message. They turned to the Gentile. They turned to the Gentile. Well, how did the Gentile respond? Look at it in verse 48. And the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of, uh, of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And upon hearing this, they're saying... Yes, we're in. We believe. Sign me up. I believe what you just said. And here we're seeing in this, this one verse, this great, this great truth that as many as were appointed to eternal life were believed. Maybe we could spend a lot of time on this, but this verse is super important and it tells us elsewhere that God is sovereign over salvation. No one comes to the Father unless he is granted. John chapter 6, verse 65 that belief is a gift. The reason you believe, the reason I believe, is because God gave to you a gift to believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift. So what does that mean? That means that God's sovereign over salvation. Relax. Relax about it. Yes, share the gospel. Yes, tell people their need of Jesus. Yes, do that in obedience. But guess what? God has appointed those who will believe. You don't save anybody. I don't save anybody. God saves. And those who God has appointed for salvation will be saved. No one comes unless the Father calls them. God appointed the people to believe, but he appointed us to preach. Look at verse 49. And the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. Paul says in Romans 10, 
how would they believe without a preacher? How is someone going to believe the word of God if they cannot hear the word of God? So therefore, there must be a preacher. But the Jews wouldn't leave it alone. And in verse 50, they incite these devout women of high standing and the leading men in the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Verse 51, and they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. That shaking off the dust of their feet was, was, was a signal. It was a sign of God's indictment against a place. It's like, all right, you want it that way? You're going to have it that way. We're done. Right? We're done here. Right? And, and, and so they, they left. But as they leave, look at verse 52. And the disciples, those who were still there, those who just became Christians, those who had been Christians at the time, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And we say, well, what's the point of that? In the midst of conflict, in the midst of persecution, there's joy. And this is this, this strange, counterintuitive connection in the Bible between suffering and joy. Between this idea of, of suffering for Jesus and still having joy. And in a world that, that prizes itself on, on pleasure, we don't quite understand this all the time. But what we understand is that when we are doing what God wants us to do, whether that's going well or not going well, there is a sense of, of joy in who we are in Christ. Of how well off, as Pastor Wiggum often say, how well off we really are. We'll end with this. Uh... No, we won't. We'll end here. <laughs> We've seen the responses, right? We saw the response of the, 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 the crowd. We saw the response of the, the people, uh, the, the, the Jews. And now the question for us is, is, how do we respond to this? Yeah, yeah, Paul was preaching to a particular people. But that gospel is still for us today. That good news is still for you today. As there are people who, who rejected, who rebuffed the word, there are people who received God's word that day. So the same is true for us this morning. As you hear this gospel of this Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, who has come to be the Savior that you and I so desperately need, it is through repentance of our sin and faith in his work on the cross, death, burial, resurrection, that we can be saved. If you'll believe that today, you can have eternal life. You can have the forgiveness of sins and be freed from what the law could never free you from. If you've never done that, we invite you to believe today. If you have, then maybe the application for you is, who needs to hear it? Who in your life needs to hear that message of the gospel? Who in your life needs to hear that there's forgiveness of sins? You know, there's some people who don't think they can have forgiveness. They're too bad. They've done too many wrong things. Not so. Not so. Not, that's not what the Bible teaches there's more grace in God's heart than there's sin in your past. Who do you need to share the gospel with? And for those who are going to share, how are you prepared to do it? Opposition's real. Opposition's coming. It's not easy. It's not a walk in the park to share Jesus. It's not a walk in the park to, to, to be a missionary both here or elsewhere. How are you preparing for that? We know that God is sovereign over events. We know that he's sovereign over all things, over people and over salvation. May, may, may that truth encourage your heart this morning. And because of that truth, we can, like Paul and Barnabas, speak boldly. Would God help us to do that this week? Let's pray. Father, it is through the gospel 
that we can know the peace of God. We can, as Paul and Barnabas gave this great picture of men who were confident in who you were, who would speak out boldly, a sense of, of security in their life. God, when we see things that don't feel right, maybe we have relational conflicts, maybe we have physical difficulties, maybe we have opposition to sharing our faith, God, may the, the truths of who you are, the truths of your sovereignty and your control, may those truths make it possible for us to say, it is well with my soul no matter what happens. Would that be true, God? Would you help us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.